Luke chapter 21, we're going to start at verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, this is Jesus speaking, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, and do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to mediate or not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance they will gain your lives. You will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants underfoot by the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the leaves. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. Now at first glance, maybe to some of you, it might appear that there is Nothing less relevant than an extended discussion of what Christians refer to as the end times. And that's because oftentimes the discussion of the last things can get into an academic and overly 
uh, esoteric or high-minded kind of discussion. But actually, if you think about it just a little bit more deeply, the topic is, for us, extremely relevant. Jesus knew at this point in his ministry that he was about to exit a world where chaos and confusion and terrible suffering were everywhere and would continue to be everywhere. And he was going to do something about that in a very real and concrete way in just a couple of days. But while what he was going to do was going to definitively end death and suffering and be the ultimate solution for it, it wasn't all going to happen in time right away. And so we wanted to give to his disciples, which today includes us as well, something to hang on to, some assurance that what is happening and will happen is a part of the plan and that it will all ultimately end in victory. And viewed through that context, this is extremely relevant. If you look back at the beginning of what we read, verses 5 to 7, I told you it would be handy to keep your Bibles uh, out. If you look there, you see that Jesus' extended discourse here actually comes in a response to a question. His extended explanation about what is to come in the days that follow is in response to a question that his disciples asked them. Verse 5 tells us that they're walking around the temple, his disciples, basically with their chins on the floor. Right, like a bunch of country hicks visiting the city for the first time going, wow, look at these buildings. And they're saying, wow, look at this temple. How it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And the temple, by all accounts, was extremely impressive. This version of it. And King Herod had been working on a, a large-scale, long-term renovation and expansion project of the temple. It wasn't even done yet, but it was amazing. The historian Josephus describes it in, in detail. It talks about the size of it, the brilliance of the, the white stones that were used, the offerings that they kind of refer to, the offerings that they were noticing. It would have referred to all the, the ornaments, the doors, the tapestries. They were all donated by, by wealthy patrons. What's Jesus do, though? They're walking around going, check out this building. And does Jesus say, yeah, it's pretty good, and kind of comment on the architecture or anything like that? No. What's he do? He shifts their focus from the undeniable outward beauty of the temple to the spiritual corruption on the inside of the temple. He says to them, look, don't be impressed by all these things that you see here because it's not going to last. All of these stones are going to come toppling down. Now, somewhat impressively, and I think interestingly, the disciples don't argue with him when he says that. They don't say like, nah, it couldn't be. How are all these stones going to get knocked down? They don't disbelieve what he says. What they do ask is when. Okay, Jesus, when? When's this going to happen? Verse 7, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus' response that we're going to look at now is a response that is, much debated, much disputed, much talked about in the, in the church and among different theologians and people that read the Scripture. But I want to make the case that what Jesus is doing here is actually describing two distinct but connected events that he intends for his disciples to hear as both a warning and a promise. Two events 
connected but distinct. The first event is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that would happen just about 40 years later in 70 AD. Those temple walls would come down. The second event is Jesus' return for the final judgment at the end of time. Now, these two events are connected and they are distinct. They're connected because the destruction of Jerusalem was a down payment of sorts, a picture of what the final judgment would look like. But they're distinct as well, and that's the crucial point that will help us in sorting through all of this language here if we're trying to attempt to understand what it's saying. And we won't be able to be exhaustive, and it may raise additional questions in your mind, and we can continue to talk about that, and I'd enjoy that. But let's let that be the outline for this time here. It's crucial to realize that much of what Jesus is referring to here is probably referring to what has now historically already happened in 70 AD. And that is, point number one, the picture of judgment. An illustration, a concrete historical illustration, a picture of the final judgment that will, that will be to come. That's point number one, the picture of judgment. But it's also crucial to realize that what happened in 70 AD was not the end of what Jesus is talking about here. It's not just about an historical event because there remain significant implications for what is yet to come. And that is, point number two, the final judgment. Now, in both of these things, in both of these these, the, the, these distinct but related events. Jesus intends for his disciples to hear his promise of rescue for those who trust themselves to him, both in the historical picture of judgment and in the final judgment as well. And that's point number three, the escape from judgment. Okay, so that's the, that's the outline. The picture of judgment, the final judgment, and the escape from judgment. Let's look at, at, at all of them. First, the picture of judgment. Now, if you were, in that passage that we just read, to sort of draw a line in your Bibles between the prophecy of Jesus here, between the, the picture of judgment and the final judgment, I would draw it after verse 24. And so in this first point, I'm primarily looking at verses 8 to 24, primarily speaking about the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 A.D. This is when the Roman legions laid siege to and practically leveled the city of Jerusalem. All right, let's dig a little bit deeper into that because there are implications of that that spill into the final judgment, but it is speaking to a very real historical event as well. First, in verses 8 to 19, Jesus describes what will lead up to this historical event. Right? Take your Bible. Let's look at it. The first thing Jesus warns them about in verse 8 is not to be deceived by the many false messiahs who would arise in the years before Jerusalem's destruction. Right? Either those who would claim to be Jesus himself, here I am, I'm back, I'm Jesus, or those who come in his name. And Jesus says, don't go after them. Then he warns them in verses 9 and 10, not to be surprised when the winds of revolution and the winds of war begin to blow. That's a reference, at least in part, to the Jewish revolt against Roman authority that began in 66-67 AD and then reignited in 68, nation against nation the ancient kingdom of Israel rising up against the Roman Empire. To this, he says, when this happens, don't be afraid. This is the way that it was going to happen. And then he tells them in verse 11 about terrors and great signs from heaven, natural disaster and famine and disease. This is actually familiar language that the Bible uses in other places to foreshadow the falling of a great kingdom. Similar language is used to foreshadow the falling of the ancient empire of Babylon. 
the army of Egypt, right? Signs and powerful wonders. The destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. And what's interesting is that all of this stuff is actually historically verifiable. The historian Josephus talks about events like this that happened in that region during the years leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. Then Jesus goes on, verses 12 to 18, and he says to his disciples, even before this, you're going to face trials. He says, they're going to arrest you. They're going to throw you in jail because of me. People are going to hate you. In some cases, even your own family is going to turn on you. And when you read the book of Acts, which is Luke's sequel to this account of Jesus' life, that's exactly what happened. You read all about the persecutions of the early church, just like Jesus said would happen at the hands of the, the synagogues, the Jewish religious authorities, at the hands of the kings and governors, the Roman civil authorities. It all happened. Then in verses 20 to 24, we read a very literal description of what's being predicted here, the actual siege and destruction of Jerusalem. And it happened, it ended up happening exactly as Jesus said it would. Josephus and other historians of the time, they record this in detail. Now here's a summary, a little history lesson, but I I find it fascinating. This is what happened, right? In the late 60s AD, you had a bunch of Jewish radicals. At first they were on the margins, but then with increasingly, with increasing influence, they incited a, 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 an insurrection, a rebellion against the Roman authorities. And it, and it, 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 caught, it, it, it caught steam. It, it started rolling. And so war had been raging in Judea for several years when in late 69, early 70 AD, the new Roman emperor Vespasian had enough. And he dispatched his son Titus to take command of the Roman legions and personally oversee the end of this uprising. And so by the spring of 70 AD, the noose was beginning to tighten around Jerusalem. The legions had surrounded the city, letting no supplies in, and in many cases crucifying those who attempted to leave. And after months of fighting, the Romans finally broke through the walls. And historians differ as to whether or not Titus, Vespasian's son, whether he actually desired to restore, d- destroy the temple or whether he wanted to preserve it as a trophy of conquest, but whether his intention was to, uh, to, to keep it or to destroy it, whether it was his command or, or not or behind his back, the temple courts were burned on August 29th. This is by the Roman dating, which just so happens, ironically, in God's province to be the exact date by equivalent Jewish dating that Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. The Romans marched their battle standards in, sacrificed to their gods, and execute the priests. And by the end of September of 70 AD, the entire city of Jerusalem is under Roman control and in flames. Anyone left in Jerusalem is either killed, sold into slavery, or sent to the far corners of the empire to be killed in the Roman games. The entire city of Jerusalem and the temple is raised to the ground, leaving only the tallest towers and a portion of the western wall. Even by the standards of warfare at the time, it was absolutely horrific. Hundreds of thousands died of starvation during the siege. Hundreds of thousands more were slaughtered by the Roman army, and as many as 100,000 of the survivors sent into slavery. There was no other category. You either died, were killed, or made a slave. No one just walked away. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 20 20, 20 to 24 and see how it matches up to the historical record. He predicted the armies surrounding Jerusalem. 
He predicted what would follow, calling it desolation, that it would be dreadful, great distress, that people would fall by the sword and be sent as prisoners all over the world, that Jerusalem would literally be trampled on by the Gentiles. And that's exactly what the historians, not Christian historians, Jewish historians, Roman historians, that's exactly what they say happened. Now, two takeaway observations from this. First, this is history. Jesus gave this prophecy to his disciples years before it actually happened, in part to validate his identity. He's saying, here's something that you can use to judge whether or not I am who I say I am. And for us, it tells us the exact same thing. It can tell us that Jesus says what he means and what he means can be trusted because he is who he says he is. That we should take his warning seriously. So first observation, this is history. Second observation, this is judgment. Make no mistake about it. See the language that Jesus uses in verse 22 and 23. This is the days of vengeance and the wrath against this people. Jesus is very clear that what he's predicting is not just an historical tragedy. It's the judgment of God against Jerusalem for its rejection, against, uh, rejection of the Messiah. The time of the Gentiles had arrived. So that's the picture of judgment. The historical destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., because of its refusal to accept and understand Jesus as the Messiah. But it's not just about the history, because Jesus continues on, and he blends what he had been saying about an historical event that was to come in the near term to a picture of something that is still to come, and that is the final judgment. Starting in verse 25, you begin to see it even more clearly. Jesus is describing events that pertain to his return at the final end of the age, the end of the world. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that there's a shift and a transition? How do we know that Jesus is talking more about the end of the world now? Well, in Mark's, in Mark's parallel account of this, right, one of the other gospel writers, Jesus specifically speaks about heaven and earth passing away. And, and, and the, also, the other thing you see is that Jesus begins to reference signs in verse 25 that are more cosmic signs. Sun, moon, stars, the heavenly bodies being shaken. It's at a different level than the more earthly kind of signs that he was talking about before. Perhaps most important, Jesus talks about his return in a cloud with power and great glory. Clearly here, he's talking about when he comes back. So for those reasons, I think that we should take what he begins to talk about now as a distinct event from the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. But we have to admit, if, I mean, if you're reading this, that the two events do kind of blend together. One kind of bleeds into the, into the other in the way that he talks about them. And, and, you, and you can understand that his listeners at the time might have had trouble kind of understanding how exactly one kind of relates to the other and where the two fit in terms of, of history, that the destruction of the temple and Jesus' return, that maybe are they to happen at the same time? Are they at different times? How's it all going to work? And it may cause some people to say like, man, how can we even understand kind of what the Bible says in Jesus and prophecy? And here's something, here's a way to think about it that I can't think can strengthen your trust in the way biblical prophecy sometimes works. Think about this as as an illustration. Um, My wife's uh, grandparents grew up on the eastern plains of Colorado. And if you've ever been to the eastern plains of Colorado, you know that it's basically Kansas. It's just a whole lot of flat. Right? But as you move west, and as you look west, what do you begin to see? The Rocky Mountains. And it looks, from a distance, like just a big, giant, flat wall rising up out of the flat. If you've ever flown into the Denver airport, you can kind of see this, because the Denver airport's kind of in the plains just east of the, 
the foothills of the mountains. You're flying in and it just looks like, I mean, it's just flat, just like straight up from the, from the ground. Now, in reality, as you're on the plains of Colorado looking west at what appears to be a flat wall, some of those mountains are hundreds of miles behind some of the other mountains. From a distance, they all look as if they're in exactly the same spot. And the only way to begin to see the depth is to begin to get closer to the mountains. As you actually move west and you reach the first of the peaks, you begin to realize some of the other peaks are a lot farther on. As you get closer, you appreciate the depth. Now, what's true of geography is true, in a sense, with time in this way. It may have been hard for the initial listeners to discern the distance between the two events because both were just way out there in the future, out there on the horizon. But when you actually reach the first peak, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the distinctions about the prophecies become clear because you begin to see that what appeared flat from a distance now has depth to it. And you can see the return of the Son of Man is what will happen when Jesus returns at the end of the age. It didn't happen in 70 AD. It's still in the future. Some people might have thought that it was going to because from a distance they just saw it flat. But as they got closer to the first peak, they began to see the, the depth. It's still in the future. Jesus isn't coming secretly. It's going to be pretty dramatic. Look at verse 27. He's going to be coming in a cloud with great glory. Now, if that's true, then there are two, two, two applications that follow from that, and they belong to Jesus. These are Jesus' applications, not my applications. Two pieces of practical advice from Jesus about him coming again at the end of the age. Two things that he tells you to do. Verse 34, watch. And verse 36, stay awake. Verse 34, this is what it says, remember, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is put your trust in the right things. Because if you put your trust in the wrong things as you await for me to return, right, then what you thought was going to save you will actually trap you. Think about this for a second in the context of the picture that he gave about Jerusalem. The people of Judea, when they saw the Roman armies coming, they did what seemed to be logical. And in antiquity, this is what happened when enemy armies advanced. You fled into the city. But once they got in, the people were trapped. And the big thick walls of Jerusalem that they thought would protect them ultimately entombed them. Jesus is saying to us, don't do the same thing. Run away from it. Run away from what? From dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of life. All right, kids, here's your vocabulary word for the week. Dissipation. What does dissipation mean? Well, dissipation means indulgence. means going after things that are wasteful, that are useless, behaving in ways that, don't, that aren't productive, that don't do anything for you. It can lead to drunkenness, and so the misuse of alcohol. And so they're connected in a way to what Jesus is saying here, right? This is when we take things in the world, dissipation, drunkenness. This is when we take things in the world that are clearly bad for us and we use them to try to fill the emptiness inside of us. When they become the walls to which we run for safety when the enemy armies advance, right? It doesn't work though, but we keep 
we keep using it. We, we keep running back to those things. These are the sins of the irresponsible. But equally, and on the other hand, there are, Jesus says, the cares of this life that you ought to be aware of as well. The things, usually good things, that can tend to overwhelm us when we run to them. The commute to work, keeping the house, food on the table, finishing the homework. They're not bad things. But when they take on disproportionate importance, they become the walls of safety that we run to. If I can just get the house clean, if my kids will just obey, if I just get past this weekend, this big project on the job, if I just pay next month bills, they become the city walls to which we run. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Those are the sins of the responsible. But this is what I want us to see. Both sets of sins the sins of the irresponsible and the sins of the responsible, both of them will trap you and prevent you from finding rescue because both of them are a rejection of God. Both of them say to God, no thank you, I'll do things my way, I'll create my own security, I'll rescue myself. And what we think will rescue us, our own self-reliance, will actually become our tomb. So Jesus is saying, as you consider his return, be on the watch. Watch out for the power of sin in your own hearts and your instinct to run into things that will not save you but will only trap and ultimately entomb you. The second thing he says, though, second application, verse 35, is stay awake. Stay awake at all times and be ready for Jesus when he returns. Now, some of you um, may have grown up in or have attended churches where perhaps this was was misunderstood. Jesus is not saying that you should lock yourself in a room and develop a detailed chronological chart pinpointing the moment of Christ's return or reading the newspaper every morning to find the latest Antichrist. That's not what he's saying when he says, stay awake at all times. It doesn't mean that. The Bible doesn't give us enough information to draw up a calendar. It's not a blueprint to decipher current events. But what it does mean to stay awake is to live with an expectation that one day this present world is going to be destroyed, like it says in verse 36, and we're going to stand before the Son of Man. Not before some clerk at the gates of heaven, not before St. Peter, as the jokes often go, but before the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one who is coming in the clouds with power and great glory. That's who we're going to stand in front of. Now, do you believe that? you really believe that? Do you believe that one day we're going to stand before the creator and the judge of the universe and be asked to answer for our rebellion against God, for your insistence on living life in your own way and for your own glory, for your insistence on running into your own city walls to save you? Jesus knew that you might <laughs> and that's why he's predicting the fall of Jerusalem first as a warning to provide further proof that his word is trustworthy because he wanted you to listen to him. That's why it happened exactly as he said. And if the picture of judgment happened as he said, then so will the final judgment. And so you need to watch and you need to stay awake. But I want us to see the hope in this. I want us to see the reason for the distance between the mountains so that we can hear the warning so that we can turn from our self-reliance and so we can be rescued. Watch, yes. Stay awake, yes. Because the final judgment is certain. But in the meantime, the escape from judgment is offered. And that's the final point. 
the extended teaching of Jesus here on this topic really has two purposes. The first purpose is what we've been primarily talking about, the purpose of a warning. I've tried to make that point. But the second purpose, the reason why Jesus is telling this to his disciples, right, to, those, to those who are his followers, is to assure them that if they entrust themselves to him, they will escape the judgment. See what he says to his disciples. Go back to verse 26. Right, there will be people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Okay, warning, right? Then verse 28, he keeps going right after that. Now when these things begin to happen, what does he say? Cower in fear, duck, get ready to get yours. Is that what he says? When these things begin to take place, what does he say? Straighten up and raise your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. To straighten up and to raise your heads, it's an outward sign of hope, of confidence. Because while the world faints in terror at the sight of the Son of Man, Christians rejoice. He's back. He's here. Everything that is wrong will now be made right. My redemption is at hand. Because the chaos of the world at that point will be over. The enemy armies which seemingly surround you, they will be proven to have no power. Jesus will be victorious. Redemption will be complete. What is redemption? What does that mean? What does it mean to redeem something? It means to obtain the release of something through the payment of a price. That's what redemption is. To obtain the release of something through the payment of a price. A transaction. Hmm. So what Jesus is saying is that for some, his return is not the purpose of of wrath and judgment, but for the completion of their redemption, to complete the transaction. Now, what does that mean? Go back to verse 21. Back to when Jesus was telling his disciples about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He tells them how to escape. He tells them, verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, this is what you should do. Verse 21, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. What's Jesus doing? He's warning his followers to escape from Jerusalem. Don't run into it thinking that the walls of the city are going to protect you. Escape. And you know that's exactly what they did. History records that the Christian church heeded that warning in 70 AD. As everyone else was streaming into the city, they remembered the warning of Jesus and they left across the Jordan River to a city called Pella in Macedonia. Pella was their city of safety. In 1847, Dutch immigrants were being persecuted for their Christian faith, and they fled to America. They left everything behind. They braved a voyage across the Atlantic. They traveled almost halfway across the continent, and they settled in Iowa, and they named the new town Pella. Jesus Christ is our Pella. In the dangers of life, in our stresses and anxieties, in the face of impending judgment, we need not fear because he is our city of refuge. But I want you to notice this. He accomplishes this. He becomes our city of refuge. He enables us to flee the city and the judgment that is to follow. He purchases our redemption. He, he buys our freedom. He enables our escape from Jerusalem by entering into Jerusalem himself. Isn't that interesting? Where is Jesus when he's making all these comments? He's in Jerusalem. <laughs> and he knows what that means. 
He knows what happens when he goes to Jerusalem the last time. His disciples knew what was probably going to happen. Jesus is not taking his own advice. Get out. Get out of the city and run. Jerusalem is not a place of safety for Jesus. In a day or so, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be crucified. He's going to experience the judgment of God himself. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Apostle John records the first time Jesus cleared the temple courts at the beginning of his ministry, throughout the money changers. And the religious teachers, like at the end of his ministry just recently, were furious at his arrogance. And they asked him to prove that he had the authority to do what he was doing. And he said, okay, you want proof? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll, rise, I'll raise it again. Right? It's taken 46 years, they said, to build this temple. How are you going to raise it up in three days? But John records that Jesus was not talking about the building. He was talking about his body. The impending sacrifice of the body of Jesus, the destruction of that temple, was why Jesus was in, in Jerusalem. It's how our redemption would occur. He was there to obtain the release of something through the payment of a price. Our release through his sacrifice. The price was his perfect life. The something released is anyone who declares themselves to be followers of Jesus and to put their trust in him as their Lord by faith. Jesus went into Jerusalem and faced judgment so that we could escape. Kids, have you ever heard of the Titanic? Big boat that hit an iceberg over 100 years ago. Great ocean liner, 1912. It can be an overused, actually, illustration when we're talking about the inevitable end of something. But it's actually very interesting, I think, as it relates to what we're talking about. Did you know that when the ship, the Titanic, first hit the iceberg just before midnight, it just felt like a few small bumps kind of scraped against the, the side of it. It's not like they rammed head on into it, tore a hole in the side of it, but it just felt like a few small bumps. And some of the passengers who were on deck picked up some of the ice. They started throwing snowballs at each other. Hey, isn't this cool? Look, there's ice on the deck. This is neat, right? That's how many people treat Jesus' statements here. Just continue on. Make it a game. Throwing snowballs on deck. Of course, there was an opposite reaction. People on the Titanic, once they accepted the truth that the ship was sinking, it was no longer, let's have fun with snowballs on deck. It was absolute panic, panic mode, because their doom was near, and they had no hope. I don't know which one describes you, whether overwhelmed by your circumstances and frantic and in fear or throwing snowballs on deck and just sort of oblivious and ignoring it all. But those are the two options that we're usually offered or we usually see. Just ignore what Jesus is saying and pretend as if it's all just a game or fear it and panic. There is a third option. According to some historical reports, as the ship was going down, some members of the ship's orchestra assembled on the deck to play a hymn and the hymn they played so the legend goes is nearer my god to thee nearer my god to thee nearer to thee even though it be a cross that raises me still all my song shall be nearer my god to thee now what's ironic is as the, as the ship's going down is a hymn of rescue not a physical rescue they were all going to die but of ultimate rescue from a greater enemy, from the eternal death of God's judgment, a rescue that happened in Jerusalem 
on a cross. It be a cross that raises me. And because of that, it's a rescue that assures us that our God has not forgotten us in the midst of this world. It doesn't minimize the reality of pain, the reality of suffering, but it puts all those things into context. Jesus cared so much about the suffering of your Jerusalem that he was willing to enter into it so that you could get out. Getting you out. So that you could go and be brought to Pella into the safety of his presence forever. So as Jesus says, when these things begin to take place, don't ignore it. Don't fear it. But straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious truth, for the impact of this warning and the lengths to which you have gone to provide an escape from the judgment that we rightly deserve. And so, Lord, when we stand before you, we thank you that our righteousness will be in you and in you alone. And then we can be assured of an eternity in your presence because of what you have done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.